Let us draw near. Biblical worship and the warming of the soul. And this morning, first of a couple messages, the title, Worship, Recovering Strength for the Practical Struggles of Life. And I have a long text. In this series, in these Old Testament passages, I've learned you cannot just assume people have a knowledge of a lot of the Old Testament Bible stories. And, and to make the points work, you need a knowledge of the events. And so I'm going to read, basically it's a whole chapter. So follow along. I hope you have your Bible with you. Don't just rely on this. Have your Bible, something, follow along, and uh, stay awake. Second Chronicles chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Everybody ready? All right, I'll read. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom and beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you. For your name is in this house and cry out to you in our affliction and you will hear and save. And now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab, Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came into the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of Jael, son of Mattaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. I'll talk about that next week. And he said, this prophet, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Jerusalem, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah 
and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. So this wasn't just thinking nice meditative thoughts. And they rose early in the morning, went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. When he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and to praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. When they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped destroy one another. It's this mass confusion. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde. And behold... There were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. There were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Baraka. And there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of the place has been called the Valley of Barakah to this day. Then they returned every man to Judah and Jerus- of Judah and Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. A lot of musicians, a lot of music. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard... That the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And so the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet. God gave him rest all around. What a story. Let's pray. It's a huge text. Many lessons. Holy Spirit come. And and take your word and sink it deep into our hearts. We want more and more to have Christ formed in us. And your word is a great tool. Bless us as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever the subject of worship is studied, we've been doing it for six weeks now, we we have certain, especially uh, 2018, relatively contemporary North American Christians, we have certain presets in our thinking. And they need to be identified and some of them broken down before the real power and truth of worship can take hold in our lives and in our church. It's it's not just for us who have grown up with a lot of religious background. It's not just a matter of learning truth. It's a matter of unlearning bad ideas. So the truth can take hold in our lives. We know how difficult the process of learning something new can be. You've probably had the experience of trying to teach someone a certain idea. And it's easier to teach a totally ignorant person. I don't mean ignorant in in the pejorative sense, but ignorant of what you're trying to teach them. It's easier to teach a totally ignorant person than it is to teach a person who thinks he already knows. 
Here's where I'm going with all this. Many Christians, devout and sincere, are mistaken in their conception of the nature and the outward practice of biblical, passionate worship. They have grown up with the idea, somewhere along the way, maybe they've been taught, that the expression of worship is expressive worship is more appropriate for believers who are just kind of naturally more emotionally kind of inclined. People who are a little more outgoing in the first place. Not bad, but it's those people who worship like that. More reserved people. Well, it's just a matter of the heart. It's maybe not said outright. And certainly there's usually no disdaining of those who are more fervent in worship. But little by little, the expression of worship is made less mandatory in the average Christian's experience. So, so while not discredited in any way, it's reduced to be something more like the cherry on top of the cupcake than the cupcake itself. It's good for some, you know, there's those emotional group, charismatics, goodness knows what they do in their churches. People that are just naturally a little more gushy. And so the thinking goes. What's really important, they would say, is to be rooted in the word. Which, when you think it through, is taken to mean how you worship has nothing to do with being obedient to the word because the Bible is just about being holy, doctrinally sound. It has nothing binding to say about how we, Christians, should worship the Lord except that it should be with a pure heart. That's just not true. Today's text is important. I took a lot of time reading it. It's important because like last week's text, it deals with the practical value of obediently worshiping the Lord. And in this text, this morning and next Sunday morning, this text... I hope you saw it. Worship has to do with the battles of life. More specifically, it has to do with winning battles in life in the strength of the Lord. And the central point in this text is worship is involved in the presence of God... And the defeat of enemies. I mean all of us recognize some sources of power and strength in the Christian walk. We all know the power that comes through prayer. No argument there. Bible study. No argument there. Moral purity and obedience. No argument there. Regular attendance in God's house. Even if not practice. In theory we all agree. The inward power of the Holy Spirit. Fellowship with the saints. But most Christians don't put worship In that list. And that's why this story of Jehoshaphat is so important. Point number one. The battle Jehoshaphat faces will determine the possibility of his future existence. Did you see it in the first two verses of 2 Chronicles 20? After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites... Some of the Munites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. 
And some man came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. What the text emphasizes is just the sheer size of the enemy. The Moabites, the Ammonites, many of the Edomites have banded together against Judah. Any one of those armies would more than outmatch Judah. But, but now they're all clumped together. Together, they represent an impossible obstacle. That's the nature of the dilemma Jehoshaphat faces. You, you, you might not be here tomorrow. This enemy outpowers, outmatches, outfights. What we are talking about here, Jehoshaphat, is Judah's existence. There is, there is no human solution to this problem. You've been in a situation like that? You're finished. Some problems are in a class of their own, aren't they? There's problems, and there's big problems. Some problems just leave you reeling in shock and, and disbelief, like you're just having a bad dream. There are people in this church right now facing problems like that. A physical diagnosis that brings news of a serious problem in your body. Something that threatens your future. Financial problems. That drown out all hope for a strong future. Everything you were relying on. Things that were once options are suddenly cut off. There's no one to whom you can go. There doesn't seem to be a solution. There's nothing else you can do to turn things around. Suddenly the marriage seems to be falling apart. You thought that only happened to other people, but there seems to be no common ground in the relationship anymore. The counseling isn't doing any good. There's nothing but coldness and indifference where there was once warmth and love. You can't find any way of bringing back what once existed. Something doesn't turn around in two weeks. It's all over. Those are real battles. I'm talking about the kind of, the kind of things that march on your life. They march on your life. That carve up what was once the hope of your future. Talking about problems that just by their sheer size make you feel impotent. That's what this text is all about. That's what this text is all about. That's what Jehoshaphat is facing. And here's the point. As we're going to see very clearly in a minute, this is the surprise. Worship has something to do with situations like that. Worship, properly understood, plays a role in bringing the life and power of God into situations like that. 
Remember, you and I are perfectly free to treat worship as though it's on God's optional elective list. Like Judah was free to leave the ark of the Lord. Remember, left the ark of the Lord at Abinadab's house for 20 years. We looked at it last Sunday. 20 years. And then a whole generation grew up learning to think about life without reference to the presence of God. It happens easily. You don't have to treat the worship of God with seriousness. You don't have to treat the worship of God as central in your life. You don't have to go to church all that regularly. You don't have to honor God proportionately with your wealth. You don't have to dig into his word. But remember, it's, it's much easier, it's always much easier to unlearn God's ways than to learn God's ways. Always. Point number two. The impending situation filled godly Jehoshaphat with fear and alarm. Let me show you one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Look at these words. I love that. I read that. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and I say, praise God, Jehoshaphat, you're my kind of guy. There's an attitude that still floats around in the body of Christ. It's a terrible attitude that if you're a person of faith, you'll just never experience fear. You'll you'll just always be riding high, shouting, praise the Lord. Never experience an ounce of fear or doubt in any situation. And, and, And that is just horrible teaching. No matter what you hear to the contrary or where you hear it, Fear does not disqualify you for either a person of faith, a person of victory, a person of worship. You don't have to put on some kind of plastic, phony, spiritual mask whenever disaster threatens. Oh, my kids have to get braces. Oh, praise God. Faith isn't make-believe. You can express your honest fear you can be a human being and still be spiritual. Just, just, just don't take your eyes off the Lord. It's in that, it's in verse 12, 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 20, 12. We are, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I love that. But our eyes are on you. Sometimes that's all you can do. All you can really do. You can't control all your circumstances. You can't control your inner fear and emotion. You can control where you look. My, my eyes are on you. Point number three. Jehoshaphat determined to seek the Lord with all his heart. You see it in verse three. Jehoshaphat was afraid... And he, he set his face to seek the Lord. He set his face to seek the Lord. Be afraid, but seek the Lord. Because many of us 
I've heard this story since we were kids in Sunday school. There's a detail that perhaps doesn't stand out as much as it should. Jehoshaphat is a professional soldier. I want to talk to you for a minute about why people don't seek the Lord. Okay, that's where I'm going right now. He's a professional soldier all his life. He's a military leader from the ground up. In other words, in this kind of a situation, it's a military situation. He's a military leader, and all of his natural instincts would have taken him in a completely different direction than fasting and prayer. Here's what I would have expected to see Joshua, uh, Jehoshaphat saying. Get, get the men dressed for battle. Get them ready. Put some sandbags up against those gates. Hide the women and children. Collect all the gold you can find. Maybe we can buy off the enemy. Sound the alarm. Round up the horses and chariots. That's what Jehoshaphat should be saying. That's what soldiers do. The first response is the naturally trained response. Usually in our fast-paced day, the, the, the first response is an organizational response, an administrative response, but it's almost always a human response. And that's what's significant here. Jehoshaphat just gives this marvelous demonstration of, of seeking God's face first. Our eyes are on you. He's afraid. And he set his face to seek the Lord. He faces this crisis situation. We already talked about that in the first point. But his response isn't dictated by the situation. He, he knows what to do first. This is not a matter of Jehoshaphat making all the appropriate military decisions and then asking God to bless his efforts and plans. He's laying, he's laying the foundation at God's feet First, he's reining in his natural reflexes and his natural instincts. He's going to seek God. Nothing shows how my life is oriented. Nothing shows how your life is oriented more than what you do first in a crisis. Point number four. In addition to seeking the Lord personally, Jehoshaphat united the people to seek the Lord corporately. It's in verses 3 and 4, 2 Chronicles 23 and 4. Jehoshaphat was afraid. He set his face to seek the Lord. See, that's that's him. He set his face to seek the Lord. But, But that's not all he does. He... He proclaims a fast throughout all Judah. And all Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. So, so first, he, he proclaimed a fast. That had to be a difficult thing for Jehoshaphat, an important step. Fasting is not superstition. The declaration from Jehoshaphat about this fast, it relates directly to the previous point where all of his instincts would be to 
marshal a military response to this invading army. That's what he's trained to do. But he stops and he sets his face to seek the Lord. And the fasting, the fasting um, is a way of saying there's the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, and there's their visible material enemies. They're marching on us. And, and proclaiming the fast is Jehoshaphat's way of saying the, the solution to this military enemy is not going to be found in a military response. We do not have the soldiers for that. There's this visible military attack and the fasting is one way, it's not the only way, but one way Jehoshaphat has of reminding the people if this, if this battle's gonna be won, it's gonna be won in another dimension entirely. <laughs> than just our army. If it's just our army, we're not going to make it. Fasting is the way God has ordained to help teach people the true nature of the problem they face. The threat against Jehoshaphat is physical. Their recourse against this enemy wasn't going to be physical. Fasting is one tool that God uses to teach a soldier not to rely on physical strength. You've seen these familiar words. This is what fasting reminds us of. We do not, we do not wrestle against... There's, there's the Moabites, the Edomites, the Amorites, right there. Flesh and blood. But against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places... It's not spooky. It's not weird. Like, like the rest of us. Soldiers would have a hard time remembering the real enemy wasn't just a visible one. It's hard to remember that. You can see the horses. You can hear the chariots. You see the dust rising on the plain as they've come against you. How, how do you teach people that that isn't the only enemy here? And he proclaims this fast. It aims our lives, it aims our materialistic lives at God. B, here's what else he does. He calls the people to united prayer. You can see it in verse 4. We're almost done. And all Judah assembled, that's the important word, to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. They assembled, they came. Had to be a great effort. And there had to be a time crunch here. Great expense, great effort to bring the people all to one place. Here's what I would have done. I would have said, now all you people, just go into your prayer closet. Everybody in his own place. And we'll all fast. No lunch. And let's all pray. Wouldn't that work? Why, why all this trouble of coming together? 
Jesus stressed the great value of agreement together in prayer. Where two or three are gathered in my name. The word is symphonia. Can you see a word we get from that in English? Symphony? If I'm going to go take Rini, we're going to go down to Roy Thompson Hall, we're going to hear the symphony. We're going to hear them do Handel's Messiah. Or, and down we go, and there's one guy with a clarinet. And I say, I paid my 162 bucks, and there's a guy on a stool with a clarinet. Where's the symphony? Oh, no, they're all playing. There's one's, over, one's over at, uh, you know, Roy Thompson Hall. The other's over here. There's one playing over there. There's another one down in the basement. There's, yeah, but... I'm like, together. Together. That's what Jesus was getting at. Agreement in prayer. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost. They're all in one room, in one accord, collectively. There is something special that happens when Christians pray together. In the last 25 years, there has not been a Sunday go by. Well, that's not true. There have not been many Sundays go by where after every Sunday night service, someone will come up to me and go, I hate those stupid prayer groups that you do. I come. My wife won't even come because she hates those prayer groups that you do. What do you do with that? My response is, so take that out of our Sunday night gathering, and here's my question. When do you pray with the body of Christ? Ever? There are situations, this is in no way belittling the power of God that can work when you pray and you pray and you pray. Jesus talked about going into that prayer closet, that room, closing the door, pray to the Father in secret. I'm not... I'm not belittling any of that. I'm saying there are times when something will happen when the church prays together that will never happen when people just pray by themselves. Are we raising a generation of believers who knows a great deal about the music of Hillsong but absolutely nothing about praying together and waiting on God? It's why we do prayer groups. People need to unite their faith around one situation or a few situations. Go at Christmas and I'll try and find some perfume for my wife. When we were kids, we used to get it for mom on Mother's Day. And, and we would go out and the trick was to find the biggest bottle. That's just good stewardship, is it not? You get, you get a liter and a half. It's made by Raid. And, and you... Four bucks. Now I'll go look for perfume for Rini. And, and, and they'll bring out... A, it's about yay big. It's a very fancy thing. It's all glass. It's all fancy. And it's got... And they set it on the counter, and there it sits. It's right there. How much is that? Oh, that's 
and I'll say, do, do, you get a, do you get a small sports car with this? Or how, what? But what it is, what it is, is something's very concentrated. It's not diluted. Prayer is like that. Oh man, there's something special about Christian people pushing their little whims and their likes and their comforts aside, getting down with other Christians and calling on God about two or three situations. There is incredible power in that. Faith gains momentum. The strong encourage the weak. We remind each other of promises. God does great things. I'm going I'm to quit right there. And next week I want to get into the thing where God, God's got this plan for victory. And he's going to get the singers and the musicians to go out. And they're going to lead the people as they sing praise to the Lord. And God will defeat the enemies. And that has to do with worship and the daily battles of life. Let's pray.